Y'all all right? You alive? Breathing? All right, relax, man. This is not, you're not taking an exam. We're in here to worship God and read His Word, all right? Feel free to say, what was the two words? Anybody remember? Oh, say it right. Glory. <laughs> There's a book entitled, uh, listen to this, Proof. Listen to the title. Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. Read that again. Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. And that is written by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones. In that book, uh, Timothy tells a somewhat heartbreaking story of one of his daughters. She had been previously adopted into a family before coming to his. And in her past family she was with, they would take annual trips to Disney World. But here's the heartbreaking story. They only take their their uh, biological children and leave her at home with a family friend. So she missed out. And so when Timothy heard about this, after he adopted her, he started planning for a special trip for her to go to Disneyland. And so as time progressed, about a month out, she started doing things and saying things that were kind of trivial, but also hurtful. And so a week before they go out to go to this uh, Disney World, she burst out and said, you're not going to take me, are you? She knew there was no way she could earn her way to Disney World, so she was intent on making her punishment worth it. That's what he writes in the book. Well, they go on the trip, and after the first day, if you've been to Disney World or Disneyland, you can know how that first trip can be overwhelming, you're exhausted. And this is what she told Timothy, quote, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I belong to you. And ladies and gentlemen, dear beloved, this is what we see in this text. It's not about being good enough. It's about who we belong to. Look at the text this morning. Just glance through it. This is the central claim of the gospel. We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love appeared for mankind, He saved us not on the basis of these which we have done, but according to His mercy, the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. This passage also outlines not only a key doctrinal issue, but a lens, an interpretive lens we can use for evaluating solid good teaching. Between verses 4 and 6, all the persons of the Trinity are named and glorified. The kindness and love of God, the initiation for salvation, verse 4. The Holy Spirit renews and cleanses us, verse 5. And it is through the work of Jesus Christ that we have faith, verse 6. See, the right understanding of the Trinity is the foundation for orthodox understanding of God and other believers. Therefore, as we read this text and we study it and walk through it this morning, may the central claim of the gospel burn in our hearts and may it forever be the standard by which we evaluate everything else. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, 
disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a fascist man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sitting, being self-condemned. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. He's really describing the society in which these Christians find themselves. Humanity's innate sinful nature and the intensity which it can manifest itself Discernments on the degradation of society. Look at our own society today, where we're headed. And he identifies himself and all the other believers with the sinful, degenerate humanity. We must remind ourselves that once we were there. It was only by the saving power of Jesus Christ that now we have a new nature. We are a new creation. Look what he says, for we also were once foolish ourselves unintelligent, senseless, didn't grasp self-evident truths about God. We were disobedient to God and His will for all our lives. We were deceived or misled, perhaps, by Satan or by ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-4, through 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know where the biggest, one of the biggest spiritual battles take place? Every Sunday morning in a church where the gospel is proclaimed, people are making decisions about eternal destiny. They're making decisions about heaven or hell, about life and death. And when that invitation is given, you feel that tug, don't you? The Holy Spirit telling you, you need to respond. The other part of you, oh, you're okay, don't worry about it. And that tension going on. I'm convinced that in a lot of our churches, perhaps even here, when that invitation is given and the song's being sang and the Holy Spirit's convicting us, we'll hold on to that pew so tight, a hurricane can blow through here, we'll still be holding on to that pew real tight because we're afraid to move. But there's freedom in letting go. There's freedom like, God, you got control of it all. After all, God, if you can create the world in six days and rest on the seventh, if you can hold up creation by the power of your word, surely you can take care of me. We're enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And in Romans 6, verses 6 through 23, we see that sin is characterized by the terms of bondage. It talks about malice. Now, malice is hate, but it's more than... it's. It's to the point where you you just hate somebody, but you want to perhaps even kill them. We see so much 
Let me ask you, do you see that in our society today, this, this hate? So much so that we're willing to take other people's lives. Just had another shooting in Odessa. Was he full of, was he misled and full of hate and he just unloaded on people? Envy? Continual dissatisfaction with one's power of possessions compared to another. We envy stuff. We want it. And we're bombarded with commercials and images saying, you'll be happy if you have this. You'll be happy if you have that. And once you buy that, guess what happens? A new improved product comes out in two weeks. Now you've got to buy this. And we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We want what they have. We want this, we want that. If we would just learn about finding our identity in Christ, everything would be taken care of. Don't quit quit trying to chase that carrot, that that thing that the world holds out in front of you and just keeps pulling away. Every time you get close, it pulls it away. Look what it says. We were being hated and hating one another. Both, all these, as you look in the text, are active, some of them are passive, but it's describing the logical results of a self-centered, sinful humanity. Why are we so shocked at what we see happening here in our state, in our society? The Word of God clearly states that in our own nature we're like this, and this is going to be a result of it. When we, we quit looking upon God or outside ourselves to find an establishment of what's good and bad. When man turns upon himself, history has always shown that's when everything starts falling apart. You have to have that standard. Look, for any civilization to, to flourish, you have to come to agreement, this is wrong and this is right. What's happening in America, that line is being erased. Anything goes. So much so we're trying to divorce uh, biological, you know, male and female from biology. You can't do that. You can't divorce gender from biology. It doesn't happen. But that's where we're headed. I came across this article called Love and Hate. And it talks about how we throw around words. That's another thing that concerns me because you hear these words thrown around so much. She, she talks about, I love coffee. I love cats, I love chili cheese fries, I hate the heat, I hate the alarm clock. I hate all these things, I love all these things. But she said, you know, I'm starting to pay attention to what I say. Do you really love coffee? How many people in here love coffee? I was afraid to say anything now, huh? But do we really love coffee? I mean, in the sense of that word, love. We might just be a point if we don't have any, we might be a little grumpy without it. But do we really love it? She says, do I really love that dress? I may like it a lot. I think it's beautiful. The fabric is comfortable and I love the color, but I don't really love that dress. I mean, if I can't get it or if it's torn, it's not going to really tear me up for the rest of my life. And she gives illustration after illustration, but she comes to this conclusion. She says, you might be asking yourself, why is this even important? It's important because every thought you have, every word you utter, helps shape your life and the life of those around you. The words you say carry weight when you say them. That's true. And we throw around a lot of words in our society. (laughs) We like to watch America's Got Talent at our house. 
And these acts come out, and I keep hearing this word over and over again. Oh, that was amazing! Really? You just said that about the other act. Oh, that was fantastic! We just said that. My point being, we're, we're saying stuff, but we're not thinking about what that really means. The book of James tells us, the tongue is one of the smallest members of the body, but yet one of the hardest ones to tame and we can do so much damage by what we're saying and he talks about in titus they were being hated and hating one another we are should be people that are known by our love for god and for each other and when people see that they'll be drawn to it they'll say what is different about these people and we have all these things happening, and we have this issue. You know, where you fall on gun control is not my point this morning. You really know what the real problem is? Jeremiah seventeen nine tells us. You ready? The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The issue is the human heart. And the only person who can change the human heart is the Almighty God Himself. Should we have laws? Of course we should. But you can't legislate morality. It comes from Him. So here's the situation He talks about. We were lost, disobedient, malice, envy, all these horrible things. But look what it says. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared... It's interesting, if you look at the Greek, that word translated love for mankind, it's philanthropia. Where our word, for, uh, ph- let me see how I pronounce this right, philanthropy, which is the study of man. In this passage, it means affectionate concern for and interest in humanity. Did you catch that? God has interest in mankind. He has affectionate concern for him. And for her. We are at one time degenerate and lost, but we are objects of God's kindness and love that, of course, resulted in our salvation. And we are to demonstrate the same type of kindness of love to individuals in our society, making Christianity attractive, resulting in salvation of other people. In other words, that kindness that you receive. Even though you were disobedient to the will of God, you're, you're full of malice and envy, all these things. But when that kindness came to you and you came running to God asking for forgiveness, because of that kindness and affection he had, he, he wrapped his arms of love around you, showed you that kindness. That's the same type of kindness that we need to be out there showing to other people and to each other. I mean, after all, who wants to join a church if we all hate each other? You get, you get enough of that out there. Who wants to join a church? All we do is sit around and gossip around. I'm not one to gossip, but I don't like spreading gospel. Guess what I heard? We should be known by different standards. We should know, be known by the love we have for Christ and for each other. We need to share that type of compassion and kindness. That's what will draw people to Christianity. You know what's turned people off? People who say one thing and do another. People who who want to claim certain things on Sunday, but there is no continuity the rest of the week. See, what we do here on Sunday, if you're a born-again believer, what we do here on Sunday should be a natural outflow of who you are as a believer in Christ. This should be not the only time you worship. 
This should not be the only time you look at the Word. This should be not the only time you spend in prayer. This should be the afflow of all that. And you come going, whoo-hoo, I can't wait to see what God's going to do today. And you're looking at me like, okay. We don't have that anticipation and that joy about meeting together as the people of God. What is God going to do? Did you catch that song? God's not done with you yet. Don't look all gloomy and whatnot at me. God is not done. Christ is coming again, but we got, I don't have much time we have, but we have some time here to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see relationships restored, people's lives put back together. All these other things that the world promises but never delivers, Jesus Christ can do it all. And we still have time. The combination of such infinite kindness and love facilitates our understanding that the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. You can read that in chapter 2, verse 11. Why do we sing amazing grace? Because it is amazing. Because none of us deserve it. Not one of us. Yet he makes it available. Let me ask you this. God chase this. If I mention Huntsville down there in South Texas, and I mention the people waiting for capital punishment, the death penalty, and they're in now. What kind of character of people do you think of? The best people in the world? The best character? But here's the thing. God loves that person too. They may have to pay for their sins here on earth, but he can forgive them and save them just like he can save you and me. That's amazing. And that's a form of public execution. It reminds me of somebody else we talk a lot about here. That's Jesus. He died in a form of public execution that was reserved for the lowest of the low. A Roman citizen was spared that. It was the most humiliating, excruciating way to die. And he did that for me and for you. And he's sitting here telling us this morning that he is not done working in me or you. He saved us. Look what the text says. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. The salvation depends solely and completely on his grace that was revealed through his son Jesus Christ. And the biblical fact that people cannot earn a salvation strikes at the very heart of human pride. It denies people the means of exalting themselves. See, I'm on a platform right now, but theologically and realistically, I'm down here with the rest of you. All right? There's no exalting me. Yes, I'm different in one respect. And hear me and hear me well. I have more responsibility simply by position he's allowed me to have. But I have no more access to God than you do. You can go right through God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, just as much as I can. You can worship him, you can read his word, you can have understanding. It's all there. You just got to step out and take it. He's not going to tell you, well, first you have to do this and you have to do that. No, come to me as you are. Let him clean you up. I believe most of you in here are Christians, but there's something holding you back. I don't know what it is, but you do. None of you were here Sunday night, but I sat right here during reset, right here in this pew. 
I was getting close to being burned out. Until I heard God speak through Stuart. Gave me a new sense of purpose and meaning. It wasn't Stuart in the way he preached. or He's a great preacher. Don't misunderstand me. But was God using that? Speaking to me. Perhaps some of you there this morning. Allow him to move and be obedient. I mean, no one's going to laugh at you here. No one's going to make a fun of you here. If you come down, we'll come down, we'll pray beside you. We'll laugh with you, we'll mourn with you, whatever, whatever it is, because we're all on the same journey. We're walking that same road. And here's the thing about Jesus. He's not asking us to do anything he's not willing to do himself. He's already walked that road. He's at the goal line. He's sitting by the Father, the right hand of the Father, saying, come on, Tim, come on. Keep your eyes on me, son, and follow me. What are you telling us? The reflection of this pride and the popular conceptions of attaining salvation revolve around keeping the law, doing more good deeds than bad deeds, and living up to some unusually, uh, usually undefined moral standard. People talk about, well, if you just do good things, if you just pay your taxes. No, no, no. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, For all of us have become like he who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are filthy, like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. See, the purpose of the Old Testament was not to show us how we can save ourselves. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to show us that we can't. And I've said this a million times. Have you ever told a lie? I can't even tell the truth. How can I keep the law of God if I can't even quit from telling a lie? See the point? See, I desperately need a Savior. And so do you. See, salvation cannot be attained by suppressing sinful deeds, by doing more righteous than wicked. Salvation can only be attained when we deal with our sinful nature. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that when we become a Christian, we are a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. By washing in the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, the eternal change that happens at the moment of conversion. It's not baptism that saves you. Baptism is an outward symbol about what's already happened inside. But that moment when you cried out to God, justified in His sight, the Holy Spirit came inside of you. See, the question is never, how do I get more of the Holy Spirit? The question is, how can I surrender more of my life to Him? How can I freely give myself over to him? C.H. Spurgeon said, Works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation, and the root must not come before, excuse me, and the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves his people out of a clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace for no other reason. And this Holy Spirit, whom He poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look at that, poured out. Some translations read that lavishly. And it echoes the day of Pentecost when you see the Holy Spirit poured out upon the disciples. But He says, on us. Which means that's happened to all of us 
who are Christians, we came to him. He poured out upon us. It's the direct result of Christ. He richly, he abundantly, he generously gave it. It's total sufficient for the believer. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. I just mentioned this a minute ago. He says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the, by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and make music from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when people get drunk, what happens? They lose all sense, right? They just do anything they want. Paul is making an analogy here. Be drunk with the Spirit. In other words, let that Spirit have complete control. Speak to each other in hymns and psalms and spiritual So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs. You're an heir. What's an heir? Not that he already had, but what's an heir? You see, it's someone inherits, right? When a mom and dad or what passes away, usually the the firstborn becomes an heir, but people do it different now. What has Jesus Christ inherited, by the way? One word. Anybody? Everything. Here, sit while I make your enemies the footstool. Every tongue's going to confess that he is Christ the Lord. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You see that? Jesus suffered. We're going to have suffering in this life. There's no way around it. It's going to happen. But we suffer and we keep our faith and we're being to him. We are joint heirs. That promise that God made, he's going to keep it. We are joint heirs with him. We are children of God. You become a child of God. Not simply by believing in God, but by becoming a believer in Christ. You become part of the family. Concerning these things, he says, I want you to speak confidently. Stress, be insistent on this. Why? So that all who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. There he is connecting theological truth with Christian behavior. That's what Paul does very, very well. It's not that the good deeds get me in. It's not that the good deeds get the relationship. It's because of all that I engage in that. Because if I do that, I become like the very one who I'm trusted. And towards the end of the passage, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, and disputes about the law. You see this played out earlier. We went through this in First and Second Timothy. Now, in the first... Part of this book, you see him talking about going to them and trying to talk to them to, to bring them back, to restore them. Now he tells them in this part, don't have nothing to do with them. Stay away from them. Stay away from those who are false doctrines, who are teaching that. And he talks about the law, the Jewish nature of the false teaching. These manners concerning the very minute parts of the Mosaic law, it's Jewish Interpretations were divisive, producing arguments and quarrels were unprofitable. He says, quit arguing about that stuff. It's not worth anything. It doesn't produce anything. And as I thought of that, this is in the notes on that 
faithlife.com I told you about. Tom Rainer came up with 20, I'm not going to read them all, 25 silly things that church members fight over. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Now, these all came in by Twitter. All right. A church dispute of whether or not to install restroom dividers in the women's restroom. Really? A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. He says, I just wonder who took the picture. A dispute over whether the worship leaders should have the shoes on during service. be kind of funny if you just said we we're standing on holy ground, but okay. Uh, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Why didn't someone just reach and have a dime and just end it? Uh, a business meeting over arguments whether the church should have a weed eater or not. There was two churches, uh, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. Folgers or Starbucks. And the list goes on and on. Here's one, a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. Because of the intrinsic of potluck. Anyway, the list goes on and on. You look for yourself. And the reason I just mention that, because we too fight over silly things. Now, do I have my preferences? Of course I do. But when it comes down to it, if we're so wrapped up arguing over little bitty things, what are we doing to promote the gospel? And to reach people. I told you this before. There's a church right down from Bellevue and Vashti. Who, oh, I think they split or some people left because they couldn't decide to put ceiling fans in the sanctuary or not. Okay. And, you know, as Baptists, and let's just be honest about Southern Baptists in particular, we have been known by a lot of our business meetings what happens and we know by people reaching out with the gospel of Christ. We need to keep things in proper perspective. See the bigger picture. He says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Kind of reminds you of what we find in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, when Jesus talks about if you have a disagreement with your brother, take, go to him, talk to him. If he will not listen, take another brother with you. If they won't listen, you take it before the church. And here he's talking about, listen, if they're not going to come back after that second one, have nothing to do with them. Because we spend all our time, <clears throat> excuse me, we spend all our time doing that. That makes more of that, it makes more of that issue than it should have, more, more attention and more concern. And probably gives that person more uh, sense of importance to keep doing it. Because believe it or not, people will come in and try to, to divide and cause problems. For example, if 50 people walk through that door from one church in Bowie, the first question I would, well, the first thing I say, hey, glad to have you. Uh, make yourself at home. But somewhere down the line, I'll say, what, why are you coming here? I mean, what happened? I don't want you, in other words, I don't want you to bring your problems here. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. My encouragement is to you that we need to keep our eyes on the bigger picture, which is the gospel. I mean, good, good stewards, of course. But don't see so wrapped up that we miss the forest for the trees. 
Biblical scholar Hubert sums it up this way by saying, Further efforts would be not a good stewardship of Timothy's time, and his energies would give the offender an undeserved sense of importance. But you go through it. Now, even if you just chest them to the side, you do what Jesus told us to do. You go to them, you talk to them, and you do it in love. You take somebody with you. But the problem today, I think, and can I just be completely transparent, is we rather sit around and gossip about that person than really go to them and talk to them with the intent of restoring them back. He talks about this type of man he mentions here at the end of the chapter, that he's a man perverted, warped, has been off and remains off the track, continues his sins, and he's self-condemned because by doing so, he's actually contributing in his own condemnation. Remember the works of all three persons of the Trinity, gives incredible understanding to grace and how it impacts our life on earth. It's something that we need to repeat and to learn. It's definitely a reminder that things that we do repeat, the songs that we sing, the phrases we use in church worship, the way we speak with each other on a regular basis, are formative opportunities for understanding God's grace when we interact with one another. So basically that is the central claim of the gospel, work the birth, the work, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And that, dear friends, now becomes everything by which we judge every other doctrinal issue. So let me ask you, where are you at this morning? I know most of you, and I believe most of you in this room are a Christian. But here's something I cannot escape this morning. God's calling us deeper. It's calling us in a deep relationship. I cannot get that song out of my head. Every time I do, and I don't say this flippantly or for any other reason, I, get, I see pictures in my head of each and every one of you telling us, God's not done. Don't give up. Our best days are ahead of us. Are you adopted in the family of God? If, or are you producing good works? Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control against such things. There is no law. What are you producing? And what are we producing as a church? I see a flicker. I see sparks. The comments that are made to me by people up to school. And the community, hey, you guys, you're getting out there. I, I see something going on. People coming to visit, saying the same thing. We can never stop. We've got to keep pressing forward. And God will give you what you need. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. The central claim of the gospel, God's grace through Christ. And right now, whatever doubt you have in your mind, you need to tell Satan, go away. He has no business in here this morning. Listen to the voice of truth. Listen to the voice of hope. Up to this point, Tim, I've messed up. He knows. And yet he's still calling you. 
He knows all your shortcomings. He knows how you handle things. He knows your weaknesses, your temptations. And in spite of everything he knows, he is still calling you and me. And that's amazing. Absolutely outstanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Father, I pray and I beseech you to burn that truth on my brother and sister's heart this morning. The truth of your grace. The truth how much you've loved them. And that you're not done. No matter how young they may be to how old they may be, God, you're still at work. You haven't give up, given up on them. You have shown us time and time again that you are not done. May your Holy Spirit continue to move and speak to our hearts, and may we respond in obedience to you. May we surrender our lives to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?